Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Grab your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 1. We're starting a new book today, the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited to teach the Gospel of Mark. I've had opportunity as I've been teaching over the years to teach the other three. I taught Matthew at our home study uh, that we had on Monday nights for years. took us about almost two years, I think, to get through it. Um, I taught Luke on Wednesday night here a few years back, and then also uh, we just recently taught John on Sunday morning, uh, probably about uh, 18 months ago now. So I'm excited to teach the Gospel of Mark. It's the last of the Gospels for me to teach, and uh, I like this book. I think this is a good book for you and I today. And really, the Gospel of Mark is it's perfect for our generation, I think. This gospel account is really, really good for us in the days that we live in. Um, we live in a day where sound bites have replaced news programs, where we get just the, the clip, but where blogs have in many ways replaced books. We read headlines, not full stories, right? I don't know if you're like me, but I get my news from Yahoo and whatever I can scroll through in about 35 seconds. You know, and that's how I kind of catch uh, what's going on. We watch 30-minute programs in 21 minutes because we DVR everything and then just cut out all the commercials because we don't have time to sit there for 30 minutes. We, we watch the highlights. Thank God for Sports Center because we watch the highlights instead of the whole game, unless it's our beloved Buckeyes, and then we'll stay up till 1130 to watch them. We live, <laughs> we live in a day... That this is an actual term. Have you heard this yet? Clickbait. We live in a day of clickbait. Clickbait is as you're scrolling through your Facebook feed and you see an interesting title, an article it looks like, but it's not posted by one of your friends. It's just a sponsored thing. That, and they're, all they're trying to do is write a really tasty headline, just a, enough to pique your interest so that you will click it. And it takes you to this, this website, and then the article is there, but they're not interested in the article as much as they are in the advertisements, and the advertisements almost push the article out of the page, you know, and, and, and so that draws our attention very, very much as well. And, um, and so that, the Gospel of Mark kind of fits our generation. It's very rapid fire. It's, it's one headline after the other. It's just constant updating and constant headlines. It's really the perfect book. Just a little background before we actually get into the text today. The Gospel of Mark is part of what's known as the Synoptic Gospels. And what that means is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all wrote their Gospels at about the same time. Um, and, and they focus on a lot of the same things. The Gospel of John was written 25, 30 years after the first three Gospels were written, something like 90% of the miracles that you read about in Matthew, you're going to find in Mark or Luke also. They, they cover the same things with a slightly different bent, but Mark sits right in the middle of these, this triptych of Gospels and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Think about it this way. Um, if I were to put a, um, a, a display up here uh, of uh, a pitcher and some fruit and a candle... And I asked four people to draw that picture from where you're sitting, 
you're going to get different perspectives, right? Like if I ask Sebastian to draw it from his angle, it's going to look, the picture's going to look one way. If I ask Michelle to draw it from her angle, it's going to look completely different, though they're drawing the same thing. If I were to draw the picture from being behind it, it would be different than both of theirs, but it would be of the same subject. And, and that's kind of how the Gospels are. And that's why I'm grateful that there are four accounts, because each of the four Gospels kind of focuses on a different thing in the life of Jesus. They all the the, the picture, the the display is the life of Jesus and his public ministry. But each one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focus from a different angle and try to draw your attention based on, first of all, who they were writing to, and then what they wanted to emphasize. So for example, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote that with an audience in mind, and it's great that you and I get to read it, but it wasn't really necessarily written to us as much as it was written to the Jews. Matthew wrote his gospel account to the nation of Israel, to his Jewish brothers, and he wanted to focus on the fact that Jesus is the king. And so as you read through that, if you understand the gospel of Matthew, you know that in Matthew he goes and refers back to the Old Testament more than all the other three gospels combined. He, he dips back and he's trying to show the Jewish nation. This has been told about for years and years and years. For thousands of years, we knew that the Messiah was going to come and be the king. Let me show you how Jesus fit the bill. And so that's Matthew's approach. Mark, as we're starting today, was written to the Romans. And it is showing his emphasis is that Jesus came as a servant. He came to serve. So interesting, the first two Gospels, we have Jesus as king and Jesus as a servant. And we know Jesus to be, in fact, the servant king. But you consider the Roman culture and the number of servants in the Roman culture at the time that Jesus lived, and they needed a gospel written to them as well. That's Mark's emphasis. Luke was a doctor, and he wrote his letter to the Gentiles. He says to to Theophilus, the lover of God, and he writes his letter to the Gentiles. And his emphasis would be that Jesus is, is fully man, that Jesus is, a, is fully human. And, and, and as you read through the Gospel of Luke, you can see that. And then John was written to the church. And the emphasis that John places is, is that Jesus is God. And so you can see four different angles of the same events, Christ's life gives us a, a grander picture. And that's why it's so great that we have four Gospel accounts. As we said, Mark is written to the Romans, and it's going to emphasize that Jesus came as a servant. John Mark is the full name of the guy that wrote this gospel. And as the events occurred, he was a young man, a teenager probably. He, uh, he was the cousin or nephew, depending on who you read, of Barnabas. And at the time that Jesus lived and these events unfolded, he was kind of Following what Christ was doing, some would say that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was there. He wasn't one of the twelve, one of the inner circle, but he knew of the life of Jesus. And he's growing up as the church is beginning. What we learn about John Mark through the book of Acts is in, is in Acts chapter 12, it tells us that there was a church meeting in his house. Well, it wasn't his house. It was his mom's house. <laughs> Evidently, John Mark's still hanging out at home, you know, so maybe now in his 20s, still hanging out at home playing video games. Um, okay, probably not. But um, 
you know, that um, they, they had a church that met in his mom's house. So what that tells us is John Mark was probably from a wealthy family. If he had a house big enough to host a church in those days, that was an indicator that your family had money. It's understood that uh, Peter led John Mark to Christ. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, he calls him his son. Now, John Mark wasn't his biological son. He was his son in the faith, similar to the way Timothy would be called son by Paul. And so we, we believe that Peter led John Mark to Christ. And so as we read the gospel of Mark, chances are we're reading Peter's commentary on the life of Christ. As Peter was pouring his life and ex- expressing his viewpoint uh, of the life of Christ, John Mark, his disciple, absorbed all of that. And then near the end of Peter's life, we're not exactly sure when this was written. It could have been while they were in Rome together near the end, or it could have been after Peter had been crucified upside down, that John Mark puts paper, pen to paper and, and says, I want to recall this account. So we could be very well hearing Peter's take on the life of Jesus. As I said, John Mark was related to Barnabas. And if you know anything about the missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts, Barnabas and Paul teamed up together in the first missionary journey. And as they went out, they took John Mark with them. And something happened. We, we don't know what the details or the events were, but something freaked John Mark out, or he got sick, or he got afraid of something and, and decided to go home. He bailed out on the missionary journey. That didn't leave a good taste in Paul's mouth at the time. Um, and, and so when they came back home and they said, all right, we're going to set out again on the second missionary journey, they were going up to Asia Minor to um, present the gospel there. Paul says, all right, Barnabas, let's go. Let's go do this. And Barnabas is like, cool, man, I'll go grab John Mark. And Paul's like, no, no, you're not going to bring him. He bailed out us on us on the first journey. And we can't take the risk of that happening again. We could be in far more dangerous situations. His life could be in danger. Uh, If he gets separated from us, we're just going to say, no, no, he's not coming. And Paul was strong on that. And Barnabas kind of insisted that John Mark did go with him. And this fight kind of breaks out. and, And this dispute arises so much so that Barnabas is like, fine, I'll take my ball and go home. And then I'm not going with you either, Paul. And so Paul and Barnabas split ways. Paul grabs Silas and heads out toward Asia Minor. Barnabas grabs John Mark and heads out in the other direction. And you can kind of see where maybe Satan would have thought that was a victory for them, you know? But what God did in the midst of it is he doubled the missionary effort. Now they've got two groups going out and sharing the gospel. And we know at the end of Paul's life, John Mark and Paul's relationship was restored. It tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul saying to Timothy, Only Luke is with, with me, and hear this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. He sets his differences aside. The first missionary journey is well under the bridge. And Paul says, I appreciate all that John Mark did. Bring him with you and, and that he can minister with me as well. Because... Mark focuses on the servanthood of Jesus. The gospel of Mark is a book of actions, not words. Mark explains more what Jesus did than what he said. Now, it's not that he doesn't quote Jesus and Jesus doesn't speak in the gospels, but you don't get the Sermon on the Mount. 
You don't get the major teachings that Jesus had in the Gospel of Mark. It's more a demonstration of his miracles and the power that he had and the things that he did. It's a book of action. Um, You're going to notice relatively quickly, uh, one of the key words in the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately. I think um, Randy told me it happens 42 times in the Gospel. There's only 16 chapters. It's by a third smaller than the other Gospels. And, and, And this word keeps coming up some 42 times, the word immediately. And if if Mark is trying to emphasize the idea that Jesus is a servant, the word immediate is a good word, because that's the proper response of a servant, that you would serve immediately, that you would serve quickly, that when God had given him something to do, Jesus didn't falter in that and went about the business immediately. It's the best response a servant can have. Think about the word immediate. M is a, a negative prefix, so without mediation is what immediately would mean, without pausing to think about it. And it's not that Jesus didn't think, it's just that he was obedient and faithful when God called him to action. He had direct obedience to the Father. We have a saying in our household when we get our kids, they say, you know, KK, go wash the dishes, and she piddles around on her computer for a little bit, or she texts a friend, and then she goes and washes the the dishes. You know, we say... KK, slow obedience is no obedience. I mean, the dishes still get done, but the proper response as we are serving one another is that we would immediately respond, that, that, that we would serve in that way. Slow obedience is no obedience, and Christ is the ultimate example of that. Let's get into our text. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You ready? I'm excited. I like the gospel of Mark. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I like that word, the beginning of the gospel. The gospel, that means, the gospel means good news, and certainly it is the best of news what Jesus Christ has done. But it continues to impact lives today. Mark records the events of the last three years of Jesus' life, including his death and resurrection, But the story is still impacting. The good news is still touching people's lives today. Obviously, you and I are here. We're a testimony that the good news is still in effect and still working. So it's the beginning of the gospel because the the gospel is continuing today to go forth and touch and impact lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to make sure that we all understand that's not his last name. Christ is not his last name. If he were playing football, it would not say Christ on the back of his jersey. Jesus, the Christ. Christ is his mission. Christ is what he came to accomplish. Christ, or could also be translated the Messiah, means the anointed one from God. So now you pair Christ, his mission, with Jesus, his name, Jesus is a contraction of the words Jehovah, Yeshua. You contract those together, you get the name Joshua. Jehovah, Yeshua contracts down to Joshua. We translate Joshua to mean Jesus. Well, Jehovah, that is God. Uh, Yeshua means saves. God is salvation is what Jehovah, Yeshua means. Joshua means God is salvation. So pair that, God is salvation, with the fact that he is the Christ, the anointed one from God, and you get a perfect understanding of what Christ is, who Christ is, and what he came to do. 
Think about it this way. If we were to take Christ out of the picture, what good news is there? If we take Christ out of our picture, all we have is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And when we see that, it makes more sense why the world lives like the way the world does live. Because they don't have Christ in their picture. And that is all that you can resort to. You may as well make the most of every day because there is no hope for the future. But in Christ, with Christ, there is hope for the future. His death gives us hope. His resurrection gives us hope. It's good news because it's hope filled. We find hope in what Christ has done. It says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just so we all understand, Jesus is the Son of God. But we learn in the gospel of John that Jesus was always with the Father. Jesus is eternal, just as the Father is. So when it says the Son of God, it's not that he was created by the Father, as some false religions would believe. He's the only beloved Son of God, and he's part of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever eternal, always existed. And this is the story, the account of him coming to earth. So look at verse 2. It says, as it is written in the prophets, and this is one of the few times that Mark's going to dip back into the Old Testament, as it's written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So check this out, Mark. By, cha- by verse 2, we're, we're cutting to the chase, right? There's no genealogies. We have to work our way through and figure out how to pronounce people's names. The, 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 no, begat who begat who begat who? That we don't have to worry about that in the gospel. Well, why? Because his focus is on servants. What good is a genealogy to a servant? They, they didn't know their genealogies. So Mark just skips it. There's no birth of Jesus. There's no childhood growing up stories of Jesus. It gets right to the point, the last three years of his ministry prior to Jesus' death. And we're going to learn of this forerunner, this man that went before Jesus as declared by the prophets. It says there in verse (coughs) 2. Mark here is quoting the Old Testament prophet Malachi. It's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And he also is quoting Isaiah The arrival of Messiah was specifically given in the Old Testament, hundreds and even thousands of years before he arrived on the scene. There were many, many details given through the prophets of how his life was going to unfold, including the man that would lead the way, the events leading up to his arrival. And so we get into verse 2 and we learn about who we're talking about, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, the man that went before Jesus. And as he was a forerunner, it says there in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and that's where John worked, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Anytime a king came to town in those days, they would make plans and prepare the road in between where the king lived and the king was going. They didn't have asphalt or concrete like you or I do. Roads were often in disrepair. Well, I guess roads are in disrepair today too, but uh, more so then than now. Uh, And and so they would, as the king said, I want to go to this city, they would send a forerunner. 
Somebody that would go before him and declare, the king is coming. The king is coming. Make, make ready for the king to come. In the way that Brazil is preparing for the, winter, or the summer Olympics for next summer, they're cleaning up their, their country and they're doing all kinds of things. They're preparing the way for the Olympics to come. People would prepare the way. They would make the, the roads nice. They would make the, the house clean. They would, they would set things up. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. They prepared the way. Well, the servant king is coming, and God calls a man. In fact, Jesus calls him the greatest of men born of women, John the Baptist, to lead the way, to prepare the people. So what's the message that John the Baptist is bringing? Well, we get into that in verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So John works outside the city. He was, he was a nomadic man anyway. We're going to learn kind of what he looked like and what he ate here in a second. But he, he, So he works outside the city, out in the wilderness. We're going to find out he's in the region of the Jordan. That's where he's going to baptize Jesus. And, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance. I wonder if where he was working is where Joshua crossed the Jordan River to enter into the promised land. And as he's baptizing people there in the Jordan River, there lay 12 stones, these rocks of remembrance in which the nation of Israel had been formed. And, and John can look at those and say, yeah, we're getting back to this idea of repentance. We're turning back to what God has ordained. We need to define repentance just so everybody here is on the same page and that we all understand repentance is one of those Christianese terms that you don't hear a whole lot outside the church. So I want to make sure we all understand. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. It's, it's a turnabout. It's a, if you were a skateboarder, it'd be turning a 180. It'd be flipping the other way. Uh, I liken it this way. If you're traveling 71 north, to repent would be to get off and turn around and head on 71 south. That is repenting. Because 71 north just goes to Michigan and you don't. <laughs> Sorry. For Michigan, I know we have Michigan fans in the house. so I won't pick on you anymore. Today. <clears throat> but that's repentance. is to, to turn, have a change of mind that doesn't just sit in your mind. It doesn't do us any good for you and I to hear a message and go, yeah, I need to make those changes the pastor's talking about, and then leave the service and do nothing with it. That's not repentance. That's not, it's a change of mind that leads to a change in action. And that's the message that John is carrying. Baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Turn back to the Lord. Turn back to His ways is what John is crying out, preparing the way for Christ to come. You have to think there was 400 years of silence up to this point. In between Malachi, when Malachi ends and the New Testament begins, we get these 400 years where the, the people of, of God weren't in touch with God himself. And, and, and there wasn't a whole lot coming from heaven as far as being spoken to. There weren't prophets on the scene. And so now that God is ready to move and send His Son. Work needs to be done. The roads are in disrepair. The people have wandered far from God. 
And so the message makes sense. It's time to prepare our hearts. It's time to repent and to change back. And it's effective. Look at verse 5. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. That's a staggering thought and something that I, until I had been preparing this message, never really crossed my mind. It says, then all the land of Judea went. Some would speculate that John baptized 500,000 people in the Jordan River, in the days leading up to Christ. This is not just a small sampling of the group that maybe one or five or seven percent went out and got baptized. It says all the land of Judea. It's very likely that John was baptizing a thousand people a day for a year or more in preparation for Christ to come. This message of truth, repenting and turning back to Christ, was stirring the hearts of the people. Why? Because truth changes people's hearts. I believe wholeheartedly in that. That's why we present the truth week after week. We bring you the Word of God, and we trust that the Spirit will change your heart. Now it says in verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. All right, John, you're out there. <laughs> I like cotton. Cotton's comfortable, right? We, we, when we get home, we, we, say, we have a saying, uh, we, we go home and we put our fat man pants on, right? That's the elastic waistband. That's the, you know, the drawstring and, and made out of cotton and comfy. We put our hoodies on and, and that's comfort. John chose to say, ah, I'm going a different route. And he puts on camel's hair. That's like, that's like a burlap bag. You and I would be, which is appropriate for a prophet. Carrying this nasty, itchy clothing all around with him. And then his diet. I like pizza. You all know I like bacon. John liked locusts. And there's people that would try to explain this away and say, well, it's talking about a specific fruit of a specific tree, and that's what... No, no. There were dietary laws that permitted you to eat certain types of insects, one of those is locusts, and you can look it up in the, in the Old Testament, just do a, a search for the word locusts, and, and you find that locusts were an acceptable food. Not my choice. <laughs> I, evidently, they're better with honey, so if you want to try one, by all means, we'll be happy to record that, and we'll share it with everybody else. I just would recommend trying it with some wild honey. No, thank you. But you know what? I don't think John was particularly concerned about the way he looked or what he ate or what people thought of him. That wasn't John's mission. He wasn't trying to make friends and influence people and win friends and influence people. John was concerned by, for the message of God. He wasn't too concerned about how he was received. And that's a good lesson for you or I. John wanted to do what God had called him to do to prepare the way of the Lord. He was focused on God, not on how man would receive him. His success wasn't in whether or not man received him. His success was in being obedient to, to God, to follow the message and the mission of God. Do we live that way? Do we walk that way in our lives? When we get up tomorrow morning, is one of the things that's going to cross our mind is, am I going to be obedient to God today? How can I please my Father today? What can I do to show that I love Him 
today. In verse 7 it said, and he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. Wow, what a statement. This Jesus saying of John that he was no greater man born of woman. And he makes a statement like this. I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. All of John's message, the whole impact that he had was pointing people toward Christ, not toward himself. What do we do? Where's our message? Does our life point toward Christ and not toward ourselves? We can learn from John here. And this is such a strong servant statement. In those days, a Hebrew servant, there was one thing that he could not be forced to do. And that was to take off the sandals of his master. They had dusty roads. They walked in dirt all day long and and dirt or your feet quickly became the dirtiest part of your body. And if you had indentured another Hebrew, you couldn't tell him, you have to take off my shoes when I get home. That was by the law. They were protected from that. And then consider what John is saying. I'm not even worthy. So the lowest of low servant, I'm not even worthy. I'm below that to loose the strap of the man that is coming after me. Of course, speaking of Christ. John says this in the midst of a successful ministry. He's baptizing a thousand people a day. And yet he says, I'm lower than low. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. And then consider Jesus at the end of his life, girding himself in a towel there in the upper room. And in fact, doing the lowest of low jobs, washing the disciples' feet. We see that Christ, in fact, is a great example of being a servant. Serving in the kingdom of God is key. You want to move up in the kingdom of God, you got to get down. You got to get lower. You got to serve more. You got to leverage more of your time and your talent and your treasure. You want to move up in the, the, the kingdom of God, that's what you got to do. Serving is the kingdom key. Verse 8, I indeed baptized you with water, John says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, the work begins with John's message, a message of repentance, but it's fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. God or John did call them to, to repentance, and that's where the gospel begins. It's in repenting. It's in seeing that we need a Savior. That's where we can begin to accept what Christ has done for us. That's where it needs to start. But then it needs to be fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus, that Jesus did come and in fact become our Savior, the one who rescued us. So, baptized with water for repentance, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's so important for those of us following Christ. It says in verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, there's our key word, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now, just so we understand the, the kind of the scene and maybe get a grander picture where it says there, the heavens parting, that word is literally torn in two. The heavens were ripped 
open so that the Spirit could descend upon Jesus. It's the same word that's used when the temple veil is torn at the end of Christ's life. It was rent, torn from top to bottom. That's the heavens were ripped open that the, descent, the Spirit could descend upon him like a dove. And, and that word upon is a key word. I want to key on that for just a second. That's the word epi. And we believe that there's a distinction between the Holy Spirit being in you. That happens at salvation. We're marked. Uh, that's our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is given to us when we place our faith in Christ. We believe there's a distinction between the Holy Spirit being in you and the Holy Spirit being upon you. God empowers us to be his servants. That's what he's doing here with Jesus. He's, he's empowering Jesus to fulfill the ministry that he has called him to by sending the Holy Spirit to, to come upon him. And God empowers us to be his servants by sending his Holy Spirit upon us. Think about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive, holy, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. It's when the, it's, it's when the Spirit empowers us that we become His ministers, that we become His, minis, uh, his um, witnesses. Nothing can replace the empowering of the Holy Spirit. As we are wanting to accomplish the will of God, there is nothing that we can put in the place of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Not talent, not personality, not persuasiveness. Those things are of the flesh, and they will last for a while if you try to work in those things, but they will eventually fail. Nothing can replace the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The work of the kingdom of God is a spiritual work that must be driven by the Spirit. When we pray Sunday mornings in the back room, one of my prayers all the time is that, Lord, we, we, I need you. I, I can't do this by myself. I don't want to do this by myself. I don't want to try to persuade men in my own strength or my own flesh. I don't want to win people over with my personality. I don't have much shot of that anyway. But, you know, I, 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 I want this to be a work of the Spirit. And I pray that that's what you want in your life as well, that we would be empowered by the Spirit to go forth in His strength because He's far stronger than I ever could be. Amen? Yeah. And he just, the Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of of a dove. That's the Calvary Chapel symbol. Has been since the dawn of Calvary Chapel in the late 60s. Um, we, it's the, the, the thing that you would recognize if you've been around Calvary Chapel for any time. But think about the dove for a second. The dove was the sacrifice of poor people. It was the, the sin-atoning sacrifice that you would bring to the high priest if you couldn't afford a lamb you would bring a dove. When John, or it says in John's account of this time, as John baptized Jesus and he came up out of the water, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist declaring Jesus to be the sacrifice that we needed. And then we see here the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And consider what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus became our sacrifice. We are the poor in spirit. Here at the beginning of his public ministry is this beautiful picture of how Christ became the sacrifice for the poor in spirit. 
you and I. It says in 11, Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and who I am well pleased. And this is the Father now speaking from heaven. And this is an important picture for you and I, because in this baptism of Jesus, we see, we see all three persons of the Trinity at the same time. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The, the Father speaking the Son being baptized, the Spirit descending. And that's important because there are those that would teach that that God can only be one form at one time. It's called the oneness doctrine. That God is either the Father or He's the Son or He's the Spirit. But that's not the case. And we see that here in this picture, all three parts of the Trinity together at Jesus' baptism. And what does the Father say? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before his public ministry began, before he shed one drop of blood, before he took one stripe on his back, God is declaring, I am pleased in this man. I I love my son. The father is pleased in the son. And hear this, Christian, we're found in him. You and I are found in Christ. Our identity comes from being followers of Christ. And if God the Father is, is pleased with the Son, then us being found in Christ, He's pleased with you and I as well. He loves us as well. It says in verse 12, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. Interesting to note, the Spirit drove him, is what it says in verse 12. All that Jesus did was by the will of the Father. You'd think it would be Satan is the one that drove him into the wilderness to be tempted and to to try these things. But it wasn't. Satan was used for a purpose here, but this was not his work. This was Spirit-driven. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. We're not given many details here. But we know that it was done for a purpose, that Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says this, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So you and I today can't say to God, God, you don't know how I feel. You don't know what I'm going through. You never walked through what I've walked through. We can't cry that out to God in a truthful statement because as it says there in Hebrews, He has experienced all things that we have been tempted by. That's the purpose of the Spirit driving Him out into the wilderness at the beginning of His public ministry. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. There's nothing that you walk through that Christ hasn't already walked through. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Notice it says in Galilee, that was Jesus' primary ministry spot. You'd think it would be Jerusalem, but he does more of his miracles there in the region of Galilee. Why? Because Jesus was fulfilling scripture. Even where it said that he would mainly minister is given to us. And so he goes to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, in verse 15, our last verse for today, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So as he is coming out of the wilderness, his 40 days being tempted, he's now carrying the message that God the Father has implanted for him to carry. It's this fourfold message that we see in verse 15. First, the time is fulfilled because Jesus is now walking among them. Jesus is here. He is still here today dwelling among us. Second, the kingdom of God is present In Jesus, the kingdom of God was there as He walked the earth. Third, repent. Make a change of your mind that results in a change of direction, a change of your action. Turn from your sin. And then fourth, believe in the gospel. And that word believe doesn't just mean have an intellectual understanding of the gospel. It doesn't just mean having it in your mind. It means having it in your heart. Believe is an active word. It's an active faith. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him, whoever would place their faith in Him, whoever would stand to declare that I believe that Jesus is the King. And so as we close today, my invitation to each and every one of you is have you heard the message that Christ is carrying? that the time is fulfilled and that Christ fulfilled all of the Scriptures regarding the Messiah that was to come. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is here today in the power and the presence of His Spirit, ready and willing to change your life. Ready to call you out of the kingdom of darkness into His marvelous light. If you're ready to take that step, then my encouragement would be to repent, to make a change of mind that results in a change of action and believe in the gospel, the work, the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's a lot by verse 15, isn't it? I told you, headline after headline. Just to give you some side information, by verse 15 in the book of Matthew, we haven't even reached the genealogy of Jacob. We're still in the patriarchs in Matthew. In Luke, we see John the Baptist being born by verse 15. Here, John the Baptist is already off the scene. In verse 15 of the uh, book of John, the Word had just become flesh in verse 14. Christ just being born. In Mark, John the Baptist, done. Jesus baptized, check. Temptation, done. Ministry, declared. Headline, headline, headline. Let's keep moving. And that's the way the Gospel of Mark goes for 16 chapters. Power-packed, action-packed. Good stuff. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. We love you, Lord. As we close in song and sing, I pray that our lives would show it. I pray that with our mouths we would declare it. I pray that with uh, the decisions we make, we would choose holiness, pursuing you, God, for you pursued us in your love. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you came declaring this message The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The times are fulfilled, and we want to repent, Lord. We want to turn away from our sinful ways and place our faith in you. I just pray for the heart in this room that doesn't yet know you as Savior. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Just that you would weigh heavy upon their heart, Lord, that you would remove the veil from their heart, that they could see their need for a Savior, and that after we sing, they'd come forward and talk with Dave or or Tim or Michelle or Marianne, and say, I need, I need to take that step of faith today. Pray for salvation in this house today, Lord. You're seeking and saving the lost. I believe there's somebody here that wants to be saved. I pray they take that step.
Lord, for the rest of us that have already placed our faith in you. I pray, Father, that with our lives we would show it. God, just help us to go forth in your power, not our own strength, drawing people to your marvelous light. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless. Thank you.